Welcome back to an election special Commodity Conversations with the team at Mikaro. Uh, before we get into it, I'm just going to say a big thank you to our supporter for this episode, and that is our friend Dwayne Duxon from FarmTender. So farmtender.com.au is basically like your eBay or your Gumtree, but specifically for agricultural goods. So you can go in there, you can buy anything from uh, machinery, hay, grain, fertilizer, anything you can think of that you need on a farm you can buy, or alternatively, if you're a farmer with some, you've got some fertilizer left over, you want to sell it, or you've got a machinery sitting in the corner, you can get rid of it. Uh, pretty much anything that you can, uh, that you will need to, to buy or you, that you want to sell can be done on farm tender. So it's a good innovative way of doing doing business in this, this modern world. Also, they've got a good product, which uh, we think is pretty interesting. It's like an afterpay, but for farm equipment. So if you want to buy something, you can get some low docks uh, access to finance. So yeah, if you are looking to uh, buy stuff online or you're looking to buy some inputs from your farm, uh, it's always worthwhile giving them a quick look and seeing if there's anything uh, available on there. It's almost like a big clearing sale, but online that you can just uh, you know buy stuff from, from the uh, comfort of the, uh, the harvester or the seeder or even uh, just when you're back in the office uh, overnight. So definitely we recommend giving a look to Farm Tender. We're, we're big fans of them. We think what they do is good. And we've bought things for our own farm uh, off of them. So give them a look. And uh, thanks again for the support. And we'll just jump right into it. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. Well, welcome back to the Mercado Commodity Conversations. Uh, this week, we will have the whole team at Mercado. Uh, we've got a wide range at Mercado here. We've got baby boomers, we've got Gen Xs, we've got Xenials, and we've got millennials, and we've got immigrants like me. So we've got a fairly fairly diverse range of, of staff here. Uh, so we thought we'd have a look at what the little the political parties are doing and have a look at some of their policies, uh, specifically around uh, agriculture, and then just have a bit of a yarn about the election in general. So we've got Robert here, we've got Matt, we've got Olivia, and myself, Andrew. So I guess what we'll start off with is, you know, what do we think are the big the big things happening in the in the ag space this election? And maybe maybe pass you off to Robert, because you've got a few ideas and what, what you think are the big ones. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, the big for agriculture, the big issue um, for Australian agriculture is trade. So, you know, what is the um, prospect that where governments can influence trade and help it? So that's a, that's one. Uh, that's ongoing. Doesn't matter who's in, in power. That's something that agriculture relies on. And I suppose the other more emotional um, issues that have been bubbling away in recent times are the live export debate mm. and. Uh, and water. I think they're the they're the probably the, the big ones, and there's a whole host of other things, but uh, that's what people are talking about. What about you, Olivia? What do you think of the big things? Yeah, well, I've done some research into the Greens Party policies, and, and their big ticket items are really um, making sure that agriculture is prepared for a sustainable future, and and taking on the challenge of climate change and making sure that our farmers are, are prepared and and able to deal with drought. So they're the things that the Greens Party are really focusing on um, in this election. But, yeah, as, as Rob said, live export is a major emotional issue at the moment that every party is sort of sticking their feet into and having their say about it. 
Yeah, it does seem to be like looking through a lot of the uh, the policies of the different parties. They seem very similar. Labour and Liberal, there's not there's not much really between the two apart from that live export. There seems to be a very big one where there is a you know really very big divergence in in viewpoint. What about what about you, Matt? What do you think's the uh, the big thing? Uh, yes, yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, I, look, I think Rob covered off pretty succinctly on the on the big three ones, and um, obviously, from my mind, I think the, the, the issues around water and, and environment are significant because we, you know, if we don't get it right as a country, it's going to impact uh, long term uh, across all parts of agriculture. Um, the other aspect, I guess, that, that has, have, we haven't touched on yet would be just some of the infrastructure uh, requirements, like when you think of particularly out in the the bush and uh, those regional settings, um, access to decent quality internet and, and you know um, phone systems, I guess, with mobile black spots is probably the only other one that I think are on the ground uh, to be able to uh, allow you know a, a regional or rural centre to operate as efficiently as possible. We've got to get that sorted out too. Yeah, well, why don't, why don't we just start off then and just have a chat about each of those ones. We've got live export, water, infrastructure, and, and the big one is, is climate. So... Why don't we start with live export? That's one that we, we there's not many people that know as much about live export markets as, as we do. But, you know, what are, you know, we, we're, we're quite clear now that, you know, it's looking likely that uh, Labour will, will ban it. You, you, had a, you had a chat with Joel Fitzgibbon about that a couple of weeks ago. What do you think about it, Matt? Yeah, yeah that's right. It's the, uh, the Victorian Rural um, Press Club event. Uh, got to ask um, Joel a question regarding LiveX and I, and I see that actually I think he's been doing a bit of a tour around to a couple of different press clubs around the country and it seems to be coming up each time on social media that he gets queried again and again about Labor's stance and I mean to, to his credit uh, you're, at the, you're at the press club launch with me Andrew and, and, I, and the question I asked him allowed for him to, to leave the door open I guess and, and you think of a traditional politician that you know that's what I'd like to not give a definitive answer uh, to be backed into a corner and, and, and always, you know, leave it out for them to say, oh, well, you know, there, there might be a chance for this, and there might be a chance for that, just to, to um, collect as many votes as possible if they're being ambiguous. But he was he was fairly clear on Labor's policy uh, when, he, when he responded to my question and it's a definite you, that they are going to pursue. If you want to hear that, I've actually got a recording of that answer that he gave to you. This is not about the mm-hmm. Yeah, well... And as I said, whole series of reports have demonstrated that they just can't operate competitively. I mean, it, it, it could be a multi-billion dollar industry, but most Australians would say we're not going to take the money if we're going, not going to be able to meet science-based expectations on, on animal welfare. So pretty clear cut there, Matt. It's not about the economics. It's about you know where, what they perceive as the welfare issue. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right, Andrew. Um, and, and like I said, very clear. I mean, whether you whether you agree with uh, him or not, I guess it's refreshing to have a politician that actually gives you a direct answer. Um, so from that perspective, um, you know, you got to take you out of turn there. But I'm I'm not sure if I agree with the answer <laughs> and and the policy. And uh, I don't know if uh, if Libby or Rob have a view on it or whether they want to kind of clarify, uh, you know, the, uh, the the parties that they've been focusing upon, what, what their stance is on it. I think, Andrew, it's fair to say that uh, he is very clear on it and um, and Labor policy is very clear. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be an easy implementation if they get into uh, get into Parliament. They have to deal with 
probably have to deal with the Senate, and there'd be a lot of uh, diverse views in there. <laughs> um, they've also we've also seen in recent times that the countries where sheep are being exported to have actually really got on the front foot, and they're talking about their investments, they're talking about their requirement for food protein, they're actually linking uh, other food protein exports out of Australia to the supply of sheep. So they're saying, well, if you're not going to supply sheep, um, we'll look elsewhere for other things. And, and the pressure is going particularly onto the Western Australian government, where they've uh, felt the presence of um, countries like Qatar go to them and say, well, we can get our wheat elsewhere if uh, if you're not going to supply the sheep. So so that's interesting, and, and that will mean that you know, there will have to be some hard decision made or some compromise made if Labor is making that decision after the election. I think uh, another point that should be made, though, is that both parties, both major parties, have um, come out and said that the live cattle export industry is not under discussion. Um, and so uh, at the moment, the live cattle will be um, you know, happy about that. I, I would make There's one other interesting dynamic that's going to bubble underneath all of this, and that is that... Um, the Live Export Industry or Exporters Council, uh, ALEC, um, their chief, their head guy is Simon Crean. And Simon Crean has a long history dating back to coming out of the union movement and then as a Labor minister. In fact, he was considered a very good agricultural minister when he when the Labor government was in. I think it might have been the Bob Walker era. Um, he was the agricultural minister. Since he's left Parliament, he's gone into this role as the head of uh, the Australian Live Exporters Council, and he'll be defending that uh, that export position. And so that's going to be a really interesting dynamic to play out. Um, we, it, you're right in saying that uh, the policy is clear from the Labor government, and the um, and it seems like the intent is very clear and determined. Um, but they will come up against some really strong uh, alternative ideas about how this industry might continue. And and as we know, the real impact of closing the live sheep industry down will be felt in Western Australia. So that has a Labor government as well. And um, uh, I, I think watch this space and, uh, and, you know, whether it's the economics or the emotion or the investment that people have got in that sways the day, um, it's yet to play out. One of the interesting things you said there was that no one's talking about the cattle industry, and uh, they basically said it's you know it's out of bounds. It's the cattle industry is fine, and I think it might have been Joel. If I'm don't quote me on this, but I think he said that sheep producers or cattle producers care more about the welfare of their animals than sheep producers, which was a bit of a controversial statement to make. But uh, Olivia, yeah, they got some backlash. <laughs> they got some backlash on uh, on social media last week. Uh, I think I think the comment was something along the lines of that they do they do a better job cattle producer looking after animals or something along those lines, which um, quite a lot of sheep producers uh, were up in arms very quickly about that one. Yeah, but I guess if if he's talking about Western Australian sheep producers, he's probably not got their vote at present on on, on the mainstay. But 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 I wanted to actually go a bit deeper into that in terms of the cattle versus sheep thing, and I think Olivia, you know you. you You've been tasked with looking at the Greens uh, policies, but the, are they quite yeah, as clear on whether it's just sheep or cattle? They've come out front and said um, that it's the whole live export industry that needs to go, and um, they've actually got some clear points that they've 
um, put forward to say how they're going to transition the the industry away from live export and into um, more boxed meat trade and international markets. So it's interesting to see that the Greens have actually come out with those sorts of plans and points, whereas as far as I'm aware, Matt, you might know more whether Labor's actually come out and said how they plan on phasing out the live sheep trade. Uh, they're talking about a five-year time frame, I, th- I think, in terms of the phase-out, um, but they haven't they haven't provided really significant detail on it. it clearly, um, some of the some of the discussion points has been around uh, looking to move towards those chilled and boxed markets, as you discussed, and as as the Greens outlined for cattle as well. That's where they see the future. Um, the interesting point with that, though, is uh, Olivia that. Um, you know, only just yesterday, I think, AMIC came out, um, the meat uh, processors, AMPC as well, the meat processors uh, group, um, just bemoaning the fact, again, that in uh, regional and rural areas, they don't have the workforce at the moment to run beyond where they're running now, which is below capacity. A lot of meat works are, are running under capacity. And, and they're saying that without the assistance is, uh, of... Um, you know, getting some uh, people from overseas in and, and skilled workers that they're going to struggle to find um, the ability to uh, to man these uh, processing work. So we, we yeah, probably... absolutely. That yep, that'll sorry. be that's a big big key part to it. And um, the Greens have put out a, a statement saying that training Indigenous and other workers to grow that processing industry is, is part of the plan, but. It's all well and good to say it, say it on paper, but actually getting these people into the processing industry and and making sure there's jobs in those northern abattoirs is, um, yeah, it's the it's key piece. It's an interesting conundrum um, because there are some processors who have been um, anti-live export, um, especially some of the big sheep processors, um, and, and you can understand why. I mean, the more meat they've got to process, the more efficient their abattoirs are, the more margin they can make on their businesses. But at the same time, there's this uh, conundrum um, right around regional Australia of getting labour um, to do that sort of work. It's just It just relies so much on imported labour. Uh, that's a real issue. I mean, the, from the, looking at from a labour government point of view or a labour party point of view, you know, they have the unions to contend with and they're certainly not happy about imported uh, labour um, services. So it's it's a real um, it's a real difficult one and um, I, I have a lot of respect for Joel Fitzgibbon. I think he's very um, um, articulate and very passionate and, and quite understanding about agriculture. But if there is a Labor government after the weekend, they're going to have some real, uh, um, what would you say, real tensions from interested parties as to which way they go. In, in managing this issue, it's not it's not a simple one, I think, and that's that's the thing. Like, we can't just go out there and ban it. But I guess let's let's move on to something else. But let's go around the the, the group. Matt, do you think that you know a move away from live exports can be done smoothly without economic uh, damage? Live sheep exports specifically, or, or yeah, live, yeah, exports live sheep, the are... live sheep exports. Um, I don't. I don't think uh, that type of level of disruption to the industry, and, and particularly for live sheep for WA, it's going to have significant impact. So I think I've said in the past, and I maintain it, that any, if the government is going to pursue uh, that agenda of, of phasing it out, they're, they're going to have to tread very carefully because of the um, the impact that's going to flow through to the, the, the entire value chain um, that, that rely on 
on that trade in parts of uh, parts of um, WA, and and I don't think it's, as, it's I don't think it's a simple idea that you can just switch out of it and into something else. The nature, of particularly the WA um, uh, system of sheep production, it means they do rely heavily on on the trade as an outlet. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's going to be quite disruptive. Right, well, let's move on to something else. We've probably done labour export quite a bit, and we've had previous uh, podcasts in the past. So it's it's a difficult one. But what about water? Like, can someone fill me in on water? I, I just don't know anything about this water buybacks thing. It's, it seems like a complicated beast. So who, who's going to volunteer to tell me what's happening there? Well, I'll start off, Andrew, <laughs> and and I won't pretend that I'll actually make it clear. But what I can say is that it's a hell of a mess. Um, there are, there, no one is happy. No one is happy with the current water situation. So, and, and it's coming to a head, you know, things like that, um, the, the fish dying in the, in the darling, um, farmers not getting allocation, the environment not getting enough. You know, it's, it's not going to be something that can be swept away after the election. It's going to be an issue that, uh, that continues to bubble along. And, um, it's going to be. It's uh, it, and look, having a look, I, I was sort of tasked with just looking at things a little bit from the labour perspective. There's a real conflict coming in this area as well. So Joel Fitzgibbon has been really strong on talking to dairy farmers and saying that we understand your challenges, we mm. understand the problems, we're going to we're going to help you, um, you know, get through this really tough time, um, and uh, and even. We can talk about this a bit later, perhaps. But even talking about having a, a milk floor price, but at the same time, that worked um, well for Will, Tony didn't Burke, it? who's the minister, Tony Burke, who's the minister for um, the environment, is saying that we're going to get Labor government's policies. I'll go back to buybacks of water um, for the environment. Now, those two things are really indirect. Uh, they're direct opponents. If you talk about areas like the Golden Valley, Victoria, where there's a whole lot of milk produced. Um, but it relies on irrigated water, and if we know that with buybacks, it means there's less water, and the water is more expensive. So, uh, yeah, from I think we're going to. <laughs> I mean, one thing that fixes um, water problems is a whole lot of rain. Um, if that's that's what <laughs> the governments are relying on to take this issue away. Then, uh, you know, I hope they're doing the right rain dances. Yeah, I think. <laughs> I think you're right when you said it's a complicated beast, the, the water issue. And I think we need to get somebody on at some point, actually, and have a chat with them and get them to give us some layman's terms, you know, water 101, because I think the majority of people know about water just now is that there's that, that pretty bad, uh, or it doesn't pass a sniff test when you've got those transactions with, you know, overseas uh, businesses in the Canary Islands or wherever it was. And... Yeah, it doesn't doesn't really pass that sniff test so close to the uh, the election with 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 there being so many connected parties to those transactions. But I guess th- that whole water thing it's it's almost tied up with the you know the environmental and the the climate change type of a type of an uh, argument. And I guess that's something that you know Olivia and Matt are probably quite passionate about. You know, you know how much. When, when it comes to this, let's talk on a personal level. How much does that sort of climate uh, issue does that have any bearing on on the way you vote? You know, compared to likes of you know, likes of Robert, who's a baby boomer. What, what's what's the views there? 
do you want to go first, Lizzie, or shall I? No, you start. Go for it. Yeah, Andrew likes to uh, paint me as the resident greenie in the uh, in in the uh, firm here at Mercado, and it's probably not too far off the mark. I'm not a I'm not a uh, extreme greenie, but I do think look from a, obviously you're where I'm economics trained, and and that's the the, the main passion. But I've always said um, when you look at there's often the argument between economics and environment. Um, my view is that um, if we don't have the environment running right, uh, then the, you know, may as well forget about the economy because to me the economy is a subset of the environment. And for a country like Australia, I think the stat is where the um, per capita we're the highest users of water. Uh, that's across the whole of the country and obviously includes within agriculture and industry, not just private use, um, but we're the driest inhabitable content, continent on the world. Um, so, you know, and therein lies the, another problem is that, uh, you know, while we go through these periods of drought, and we've been going through drought for, you know, hundreds of years here, um, but it, as, as, you know, population grows and as uh, yeah, uh, the situation becomes potentially more dire with uh, global climate change and, and I guess a redistribution of where the water falls, um, we're going to have to be very careful about how it's used. You know, if you go and look at something like that Murray-Darling system and, and, and down towards um, Renmark into the South Australian area, that you know, at the end of the chain of flow of water, um, they're incredibly efficient there. There's no open, uh, open pipes running uh, water from one area to another. It's all closed pipe systems. Um, you know, there's... there's uh, uh, wireless probes in the ground everywhere, so the water is used absolutely efficiently everywhere because they they have to be as um, as efficient as that because they're at the end of the chain. And I mean that type of uh, investment in infrastructure and 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 um, using the water as wisely as possible uh, has to flow all the way along uh, back up back up the Murray Darling Basin. So so we um, we really value the resources uh, as importantly as it is for. For so much of agriculture and and just general uh, living, uh, I think it's a, it's a huge issue. And, uh, Olivia, you've been looking sort of closely at that that Green Party. You know, what about their policies? Do you think they are good for agriculture when it comes to the the climate, or are they more centred towards you know are they, are they negative? I guess what I'm saying is, are they negative towards agriculture, or are they positive towards agriculture? Oh, look, it's it's hard to say whether it's completely in one direction or the other. They've definitely got the focus on better management of our water resources. Um, they're you know, putting forward policies where they're looking at setting targets to reduce water consumption. Um, you know, that doesn't sound like it would be a good thing for farming communities, but then they've got other sort of plans in place to put in, in financial incentives for people that are controlling livestock access to water and you know, encouraging and promoting efficient water use. Um, I think anyone that's under irrigation would probably be a bit concerned if um, a lot of the Green Party policies got put forward. But, yeah, it's, it's hard to say whether whether the, the overall plan for the Green Party and, um, and that climate sort of mitigation would be a good thing or not for farmers. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. Like, just to talk about my background, like coming from Scotland, irrigation is not necessarily that important because, well, we're pretty well irrigated just naturally. But, you know, I, I see a lot of this in the irrigation argument. I guess it's market forces that dictate where, where the water goes, the most profitable um, 
crop or product will get the water. And I think that's one of the big issues that we've seen that it, a lot of that water has gone to, you know, away from, you know, traditional industries in those areas. And I think that is probably a big challenge for places like, you know, I guess one that we can probably talk about is Walkool has had, you know, some challenges where they have uh, not got the water that they need to, to use what they were normally would have as an enterprise. So it is an interesting Andrew, one. There's, um, a- Andrew, I think there's a point I want to pick up on what Matt was saying about how Australia per capita is the biggest user of water. Um, per capita, there wouldn't be many countries that export more food to the world either. That's a good point. And, uh, and, and, and you can't have it both ways. I mean, either... and. You know, either we're we're big producers of food and uh, and selling it into the world, which isn't required, and in the future is going to be even more important. Um, there's there's no argument against being more efficient users of the water, but we shouldn't get too um, we shouldn't be shy about saying that yes, we use water, but we use it um, well. Uh, we've invested um, privately and government-wise, have invested a lot of money in making that more efficient. There's no doubt if you go back in the past have a look how water was actually misused. It wasn't treated as a valuable commodity, but now um, it's more and more being treated as valuable. Um, it's uh, it's being well used, but at the end of the day, it's to produce product. And, uh, and as we know, most of Australia's product is not consumed in Australia, it's exported to the rest of the world. Now, that is, that is a good point, because really we should not be looking at per capita. We should be looking at water use per Per volume of product produced, so whether it's cotton or whether it's wheat, and I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that we are probably one of the most efficient, or we have the highest water use efficiency when it comes to water on uh, on cotton. So that would point towards it being, you know, we're not being we're not being silly with water anymore because we can't afford it. And I think you you pointed out there that it water is a commodity, and that is probably one of the issues I hear quite a lot about water is that. You know, those people speculating on water and holding water with a view of it being, you know, something to profit with in the future. And I think that's probably an issue that I can see many farmers seeing is that, you know, a lot of the, and I don't know what the numbers are, but a lot of people with water entitlements don't actually physically have uh, any use for the water other than, I guess, uh, you know, rent seeking. So that is an interesting one. So, yeah. yeah, and that's an area that needs to be addressed, Andrew, because um, the uh, that that's I mean that's scandalous, really. If if people are actually able to trade water and buy water and um, and not use it for its full production, um, that's what Australian agriculture is about. Australian agriculture is about investing in agriculture to produce products. Um, if people are doing it for other reasons and quite. Um, Systematically, it would appear, and, and you know, some really large tracts of water have been traded out of the system and not used, but people have made a lot of money out of it. Um, that's where people get really a real sour taste in their mouth, and you can understand the farmer, who is um, you know quite, um, he's quite objective in what he's trying to do. He's trying to produce something um, off the land he's got with the resources he's got, and if he's got water, um, he wants to be able to produce something that. Uh, profitable and and is sought by the rest of the world. So you're right. I'll leave my. I'll get off my. Uh, get off the soapbox. <laughs> but I think. Well, what about? Okay, we're talking about markets there. We're talking about, uh, you know, speculation. And, and some people say speculators are good. Some people say they're bad. I think they they actually 
in a lot of in a in a market that's operating properly, the speculator is good because it provides that liquidity. I'm not a hundred percent sure that speculators in a water market that the market there is actually working like efficiently, like you would say in say Seabot wheat futures. You know, I think that's a as a well operating liquid transparent market and speculators provide a tool. But let, let's talk about market forces and you know, one of our you know, where we cover most of the time is is economics and analysis of of, of price markets. What about mill price floor? You know, this is this is an interesting one because uh, Joe Fitzgibbon has said that they will introduce a, a floor price and just to give you some details on it. They want to basically, the details aren't all that clear, but they want to have independent assessor who will go into each of the milk uh, production areas and then we'll work out what the cost of production is and then a milk price will be established based on that cost of production. You know, what's the views on that one? I know I'll give you my views. Uh, I'll give you guys a break. But it seems to me a bit dangerous uh, when when governments get involved in markets. And I think, you know, we're really talking about a milk industry at the moment that has, you know, reasonably high milk prices. I saw on Twitter today that somebody was saying it was the third or second highest milk price in in history. It's not really the milk price that's the issue then, is it? It's actually the input price. So, you know, again, like you said, like you said before, it's the water price. And also it's the the grain price. So I'm a bit sort of confused about whether a milk price floor is a good thing for producers or whether it's something that's open to, you know, market manipulation. Does it, does it force us or move us on to having a bit of a, a, what, a milk lake and a cheese mountain? And really does it mean that, well, if a dairy producer is... Uh, getting his uh, milk floor price, well, he can pay really whatever he wants for, for grain because it's going to be subsidised by uh, the government or at least it'll be mandated how that works. And I guess, well, what do we do? You know, why is it? Why is milk uh, singled out for a floor price? We've got pork producers who over the past 18 months have been going through a, a pretty pretty hard margins. You know, where is their sort of full price for, for pork production or, you know, two years ago we had oats at 120 and barley below $200 a ton. Where is, where's their floor price? And I guess I'm always, you know, concerned when it comes to that contagion of, you know, moving on to the next thing. And I'm, I'm not necessarily sure. And, and you can probably, Robert's probably the best person to ask, but, you know, you were around uh, when there was another floor price in, in Australian agriculture. <coughs> How, how did that end up? I was with, with the wool market. Well, um, yeah, Andrew, I, you sort of nominated me as the um, as the older one in the whole group. So, uh, but it's right. I was there for the. Um, I started in the uh, wool floor price, um, and uh, and I've been involved in the consequences of that floor price failing. It was interesting. Early in my career, though, somebody said to me once that, uh, you know, there were people who studied all these things and they said there isn't a floor price anywhere in the world for an agricultural commodity that has survived long term. And uh, and I guess that's still the case. Um, I was saying that Joel Fitzgibbon has got a pretty good handle on agriculture. This is one area where he is loopy. It's completely crazy. <laughs> um, there's no way no one just 
I've, I've got a sound no file. There's no way now this can work. I've got a sound file for it. This is my, my fancy new podcasting equipment. Tell him he's dreaming. Does yeah, that, well. Does that, does that fit? As, that fits. That certainly fits. Um, he, he is dreaming. There's no way now this is going to be able to be implemented because you just can't. If you ask one person what are my costs, um, <laughs> it'll be completely different to the next door neighbor. And, and that's just the way it is. So what happens is that you need to have an uh, environment where governments can uh, doing the best where, where they can influence, and that's in trade, that's in uh, re- uh, reducing tariffs and opening up markets. That's where, if you have a look at successful agriculture industries, that's the role of the government. When you start to try and get in, involved in um, in, deter- in making profits or guaranteeing profits for farmers or anybody, um, it, it ends in tears. And we know that uh, wherever governments start to spread their money, and we won't go into all the examples, um, people have a very good ability to start taking advantage of those um, well-intentioned objectives, I guess. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I, I rest my case on that one. This, uh, as, um, as Daryl Kerrigan would have said in the, uh, in the castle, tell him he's dreaming. It's not going to happen. Yeah, I think it's – what I found interesting was, well, Matt and I, you mentioned earlier that we'd gone to the Rural Press Club, and I found it quite – Ironic that during uh, Joel Fitzgibbon's presentation, he had said, we will introduce a milk floor price. And then about two minutes later, he mentioned that the government's place wasn't to be involved in markets. And I thought, mm, isn't that a bit ironic? He believed in the mar- I, think he said, I think he said he believed in the market mechanism to determine uh, you know, what the outcomes would be. And, and by and large, uh, from an economist's point of view, that's uh, exactly what you should be doing is uh, allowing the market uh, to determine uh, the price of the good. Um, yeah, but however, with the milk price, there was a difference of opinion. And as, as Robert outlined with the wool uh, history uh, there, the reserve price scheme for wool, um, it didn't end well and you had a massive stockpile of wool and that, and that fits into the, uh, the exact uh, classic economic uh, assessment of what happens when you put a floor price, price on a market and the, and, the, and the normal market price would have gone lower you end up with a huge oversupply of the goods um, and, and it's only so a matter of time that, that whoever's funding uh, the oversupply of that good, it can't, it can't kind of last through its entirety and it's probably a reason why, um, as, as Robert pointed out, there's been no long-term floor price in agriculture that's ever um, been able to be sustained long-term. And again, it comes back to that point of view that, well, we're about 24 million people, 25 million people, and... You know, in an industry that is uh, well, a free trade market, you know, we can't be paying substantially above the rest of the world. You know, so I, I think it's a bit of a furphy, and I think it's a way to try and win votes, I guess. But I don't see it as being working. I think at longer term, it won't be particularly good. But we sort of we sort of talked about a lot of the policies and a lot of different areas. Why don't, why don't we just have a bit of a chat and a bit of a yarn about you know who who do you think is, oh, let's go around everyone, who do you think is the best party for agriculture? Olivia, we've not spoke much, so we'll, we'll get your input. Who do you think is the best party for, for, for agriculture? <laughs> no, oh, the, it's it's, it's an easy one. To start with. <laughs> <laughs> Can I spend the po- politics to answer this question? Um, uh, look, it, it, it's quite hard to say. It depends on what, what industry you're supporting, um, you know, on the anyone involved in the 
live sheep trade over in WA is obviously going to say that um, you know they're supporting the Liberals um, just because it's a Labor's position on on phasing out the trade, whereas um, those that are more focused on climate and sustainability um, are probably more inclined to thinking along the lines of Labor's um, targets there. So yeah, there's there's points in both in both parties that yeah. <laughs> who, who do you think will win? <laughs> who do I think will win? Um, uh, to go off the the um, indications at the moment, I'd say Labor. Yeah, yeah, probably so. And you're you're obviously in Cronulla, Scomo's uh, Scomo's home yeah, area. Um, Scomo's local. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a safe seat, I imagine. Yes, yeah, it has been for a long time in in the shire. What, what are you? What about what about you and Robert and Matt? What do you think? Like, who do you think's the best? In terms of uh, the best for agriculture. In terms of who's best for agriculture? Uh, look, I think Olivia. The summary Olivia gave was pretty good. Um, from from my perspective, um, and I've already outlined. I don't like the look of uh, Labor's live export policy, and I prefer the Liberal one, but. Um, I think uh, if you look at things like what's been happening with the water uh, scenario and, and more indeed the, the climate change, uh, uh, broader climate change debate, um, I, I think there's elements of the Liberal parties, you know, that, that extreme right wing um, uh, group there that have had fairly definitive views around um, climate policy and, and it doesn't, it certainly didn't um, align with Malcolm Turwell's and, and the moderates' views. Um, I think that's a real problem for the Liberal National Party is that I think their climate policy is um, has been a bit of a joke, to be honest. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily go down the, the path of the Greens uh, because I think they sometimes go down with reckless abandon uh, for the economy. So I think you've got to have a balanced approach uh, between the economic impact and the environmental impact. Uh, and so from that perspective, I think probably Labor's got a better standing in climate policy. Um, and, and, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, I think when you're looking at it that way, it's it's difficult to say what's the uh, who's going to benefit agriculture more across the board because um, I think in some areas the, the parties are doing better and in other areas they're they're performing poorly from my perspective. Robert, what about yourself? Well, taking account of my long years of experience, Andrew, and um, I've I've uh, been in agriculture all along and have therefore operated under Labor and Liberal governments. And I think, looking back, you can't actually say that the areas of agriculture that I've been involved in did better or worse under either. I I think it it didn't really matter. There was one exception, and that was when Labor, uh, in a rush of blood and without a lot of forethought, um, banned live cattle exports out of the north, you know, and that was was a bad decision. But apart from that... um, I can't think of much, and I'm sure there'll be listeners who will ring in and say, you know, that Labor did this or Liberal did that. And, and But basically, agriculture flows long. And we should remember that the major drivers of agriculture output in Australia are prices and the seasons. Now, we all agree that governments have not much influence on prices. and um, probably no, apart no influence from, on uh, rain. Well... There is a bit of a story that Gough Whitman could make it rain or do what he he, he was considered God, but I'd never I never saw any, much evidence of that. But um, you're right, by and large, I can't do anything about the season. So um, that said, 
you know, we're going to either have a Liberal or Labor government after, you know, the Greens are going to be chipping away but not really having much impact. It's going to be Liberal or Labor. Um, if, if you honestly look back over time, um, governments don't really have that much impact on what happens in terms of farm productivity. It's price and season. No, and I think that's the sort of way I sort of look at it as well is that, you know, okay, there's going to be individuals who are impacted by a particular party's policies, but largely everyone just gets on with it. And whatever happens in Canberra is largely in the Canberra bubble. We get on with it and we just continue as per normal. You know, obviously the big one in agriculture probably will be that that sort of live export in, in, South, in Western Australia, which will have a big impact on individual farming performance. But, you know, largely there's not much hugely between the parties. I, I was listening to a podcast this morning and one of the interesting things is they were commenting that if Liberal had a stronger climate policy, you know, if they'd followed a climate policy that Malcolm Turnbull had when he initially had taken over the seat from Tony Abbott, that they would most likely win this election. I think that's, as much as we can talk, we've got to be careful that we don't get in that uh, agricultural bubble in that largely the votes are in the city centres. And if we were to look at them and say, well, uh, it's, it's really the, the votes in the city that matter. And I think, you know, they're not really going to focus too much on agriculture, really. And, and yeah, I think it is a case of, uh, my view is that Labour will, probably will walk away with this election. And uh, and then we'll see how it, how it goes over the next couple of years. But, you know, we've, you know, in the 10 years I've been here, we've had Labour in power. And, you know, apart from, again, what you mentioned with that live export ban, you know, largely everyone everyone did well. You know, whether they're in a Labour or whether they're Liberal, it's not really important who is in unless they're some, I guess, far left or far right party. It's really most of the parties, when you look at them, the policies are not all that dissimilar. Greens are quite dissimilar on a number of ones. Like, for instance, they want to ban all intensive agriculture. But largely Liberal and Labour are, you know, there's not much to, to, to go between the two. The unknown, and though, Andrew, the, the unknown in that one, Andrew, I think um, might be the impact of, uh, of the, you know, the, the, uh, the yellow uh, United Australia pay that we've been seeing, incredible amount of advertising, um, something that's kind of in the back of my mind. Um, and, and certainly I think there's no substance to some of the, the stuff that comes out on their advertising uh, in terms of real policy, but uh, there is a, probably a part of the electorate where it would ring a chord when you're saying those motherhood statements about all these great things you're going to do and how great Australia is. And, and uh, you know, uh, I think that might... For, for parts of the electorate that um, potentially um, you know, don't want to vote Labor, but they're frustrated with the Liberals, um, and then and they're not you know, going to vote Green kind of thing, uh, that that party might be a, 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 a viable option, or even indeed electorates that have got uh, maybe not necessarily one um, a, uh, a United Australia representative, but a um, an, an independent that's got a profile like. Um, like uh, Julian Bernstein in the seat uh, here in Victoria. Um, oh, that guy with the know, beard he's, he's, in the Mallee. Yeah, there's significant there's significant challenges to the status quo. And I think now on a, on um, Q and A this week, Gina Tarley was saying that, that that seat now that Julian Bernstein's running for, which is a, a you know strongly uh, held Liberal seat in Victoria, um, he's he, he Julian Bernstein's now 
a, a credible uh, threat to uh, Josh Frydenberg uh, to take that seat away from the Liberals. And I, and I think that's the kind of thing that we might see a, a shock in this election is your Clive Palmer-type um, representatives um, as a viable option because people are so frustrated uh, with the major parties. Uh, and, and we could have a balance of power in the Senate that's very, uh, you know, the Greens might not be the, the, the party that holds the balance of power in the Senate. Uh, you, you could find a whole mishmash of, uh, of United Australia Party, uh, One Nation, Greens and other independents uh, helping to determine where the country's heading, which is a bit of a concern when it gets to be so messy like that. And I think... I thought I, to, I thought I was listening to Anthony Green there uh, for a minute, Andrew. Uh, sounded like <laughs> Anthony Green's country. Can I just... Um, you didn't ask me who I think is going to win. I don't know. Oh, if you, were you interested? Yeah, yeah. Who do you think is going to win? Well, um, I'm, I just had a look at sports bet, and I think um, that's a really good. Uh, the the, the, um, the are betting right. agencies are really good. Yeah. Um, not not the we're encouraging gambling, Robert. Not, not at all. We're just using it no. to market. But please, please gamble responsibly while right. listening to this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> so. If I have a look at uh, the next election, who's going to be sworn into government? Uh, we agree it's a two-horse race. It's Liberal or uh, Labor or, or the Coalition. So Labor's a dollar sixteen, and the Coalition is five dollars. Now, in a two-horse race, in a two-horse race, I'd be having a dollar on the five-dollar one, and uh, rather than a dollar on the dollar sixteen chance. So, um, and <laughs> and if. And then what happens, of course, you throw up uh, what happens in, happened in the US where, you know, the Democrats were favourites and also in the UK where um, Brexit wasn't the favourite and yet it came true. But just to finish for my little, um, for this input, <laughs> um, you were saying about um, the uh, United Australia Party, uh, they're $251 to be the next sworn in government. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the part after your uh, bit of advice there, Matt. Uh, well, I might, have a, I might have a dollar on that one, uh, Rob. Uh, that sounds like a decent bet. I don't, look, I don't think they're going to get into power. Of course, I, my money would be on Labor. Balance of power. Uh, but, but it's when, you know, clearly it's going to be either Liberal or Labor, and I, I think Labor's going to, going to um, act, uh, get the uh, get the seat into uh, the government this time around. But um, it'll, the key will be whether they can maintain the Senate, I think. And, and I, I've got... I'll be surprised at all if we get a real mishmash, and maybe even it might be a minority government again, potentially with uh, with a whole lot of uh, new characters in the Senate that uh, uh, you know that need that need to be uh, persuaded. Um, so yeah, I think interesting but, times. But talking about our old friend Clive, like I've got another sound file here, and I think it is the most most heard thing of this entire election. I'll just play it just now. Authorized by Clive Palmer for the United Australia Party, Brisbane. He has thrown so much money into this election. Like he must have spent more than Labour and Liberal combined. I wouldn't be surprised. And I think that's where you know not everyone is looking at politics as closely as uh, as as we are potentially. And they might be looking at those you know, bombardment of you know, like you said, motherhood statements uh, on YouTube and. You know, there's, there's, I don't think there's anywhere they haven't been advertising on Spotify and on everything. We, they didn't. They've not sponsored this podcast, but you know, maybe they, maybe they maybe they could send us a check. But I think, like, a, this is only my second time voting. Olivia, you've probably voted three times. Would it be? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a few times now, Andrew. But thanks for that. Fe- feels like a lot more. But I sort of look at it in that. 
you know, I come from that the UK where, you know, we don't have this huge number of different parties to vote for. And I think it's, you know, you look at the, my, my wife did the postal voting uh, last week and looking at the Senate tablecloth and you're thinking half these parties are, I'm not going to say names, but there was a lot of, a lot of far right parties, a lot of, a lot of anti-immigration parties. And I think it's, it's definitely is a, there could be a few surprises in there in terms of you know people getting fed up of the, the status quo. And we are seeing that in parts of Europe with, even like in the UK with the EU elections, with the Brexit party looking to win a lot of the seats uh, because they're fed up with you know the, what they see as these professional politicians. So we might see you know some unusual people in the Senate again, which will make for you know an interesting time. But you know, any, any other thoughts for it? We might wrap it up relatively soon because we've been we've been talking for forty odd minutes. Any anything else to add in? Um, no, nothing much from me except that um, this isn't an endorsement of anybody, and uh, I hope we've complied with all the electoral um, protocols. Yep, no, I think we've been fairly fairly balanced. We've, we've given our opinions, and we'll see what happens on on Saturday. There's a, there's other events on Saturday as well, of course. I think you know the election might be overshadowed by Eurovision. Uh, so, you know, will Anthony Green? Will the people actually watch them, or will they be watching uh, who wins the the Eurovision Song Contest? Uh, I'll be watching Eurovision. Yeah, I reckon I'll be I'll be yeah. the same. So. Yeah. And, and the one thing we know for certain is that come Sunday, that's when the election campaign will start for the next one. And that's what it seems to be. Any, anything else, Matt and Olivia? Not from, no, not from my side. No. Right, well, we'll have it a wrap there. And uh, I'll leave you with a message from, uh, as soon as we've finished, I'll leave us a message from Bob Cutter. But I ain't spending any time on it because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. Right, oh, so he's, he's finished talking about it, and I guess we'll finish talking about it as well now. <laughs>